The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, it's time again for a bonus episode. Bonus episode. It's that thing that gets you through COVID-19 <laughs> is listening to bonus episodes of our podcast. Who do we have on the bonus episode of our podcast today? Uh, Michael Tybersky. Michael Tybersky, a director of a fantastic movie, which you can now see on uh, Hulu for free if you're a Hulu subscriber. Uh, I think it was uh, released by IFC Films. It's called The Sound of Silence. Oh wait, what what is I I've heard of this. Tell me tell me more. Tell me what it's about. Sure. Uh, the Sound of Silence features Peter Sarsgaard, uh, Rashida Jones, and it is a wonderful auditory experience. And so I'm highly going to recommend that if you can watch this movie in a place where you can uh, block out the rest of the world and turn up the sound or even headphones, you might really enjoy it because uh, the sound design is another character in the movie the sound Ooh. plays such a yes i mean uh, people who are a uh, is it a s m r a m s r i can't re- recall tell you what that is but the uh, people who talk very close to microphones and wear oh, headphones yeah. and the, they like they, pretend to cut your hair and stuff yeah th- that that's not what this is about that's not what this ASMR, is but yeah it's, if you are one of those people though i have to imagine you will really enjoy this movie because it, it's it's a it's a I, I like the interview. I liked uh, meeting Michael very much and I loved his movie. And I think that uh, it was horribly overlooked at Sundance. Uh, it, it wasn't entirely overlooked. I mean, it ended up getting released and everything else, but now uh, it's uh, easy for people to see and they absolutely should see it. Uh, Peter Sarsgaard's fantastic. I love and, him. Uh, in basically yeah, I everything love, I've ever seen him in. Uh, absolutely. And uh, it's, it's a fun movie. It's a fun movie without being, chipper i'll put it that way it's like it's 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 not like you know this is not like hey it's a good time movie but it's a fun quirky movie in a way that you don't expect it's got uh, a very deliberate pacing and uh, i think it works really well i will definitely check it out and I'll, and furthermore i think we should do our next episode in asmr <laughs> hello listeners <laughs> I think that'd be really obnoxious and we that should, we should absolutely not thing we'd ever done. N- not do that. Yes. We don't, uh, you and I don't really have voices for ASMR. I don't think, I, mean, I, guess, <laughs> I don't think you really need a voice. I think you just need to whisper very close to your microphone and turn the volume up loud. Oh. And so yeah, well, those ASMR. Super weird. <laughs> it's I, so weird. I, I, I mean, get. like if that's your thing, I'm not judging. It's just uh, not my thing. <laughs> anyway. Uh, all right. Well, here it goes uh, with the interview. <laughs> yeah. Michael Tybersky. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So this is Ilya with the Cinematography Podcast, and I am sitting down with Michael Tybersky, who is the director and writer, co-writer of the feature film The Sound of Silence, which has just had its premiere at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Michael, this is a strikingly visual movie, even though I would say ostensibly it's all about sound and the sound is wonderful and the sound and the visuals sort of play together. Can you tell me a little bit about what your inspiration was for this project? Uh, where, where does this come from? Where, w- what part of you ended up on the screen? 
Sure, yeah. I mean, so, so many things, I suppose. Hard to narrow down to just one, but kind of a good leaping off point is always about sound. I think it's sound has always been intriguing to me, not just in movie makings, but just in, in, in general. It's this it's this tool that, um, you know, is, is used uh, in motion pictures, and I think not always uh, to its maximum potential. I was thinking recently, I took a, when I was in film school, one of our first projects, hands-on, was um, uh, before making a uh, like uh, before shooting uh, on film or video, they gave us a, an audio recorder to um, walk around with and make kind of an audio documentary just with sounds. And I, I think I ironically uh, didn't do well in that assignment. Uh, I think that, that they, it was maybe looking for something more experimental. And uh, since then, I've, I've, I've thought a lot about that. But it's um, I think it definitely piqued my interest into how much story you can tell with just sound. Um, early on, and that's that that that's that's always been intriguing. But I suppose I also I grew up in a in, in outside of New York um, in the country, and uh, having lived in a place like New York City, an urban environment for the last decade now, it's I can't help but think about sound all the time. It's um, it's all around us. It's it's inherent to living in the city, and th- that was that was an interesting kind of subject matter to talk about in a movie and then my friend uh, who I co-wrote this with Ben Neighbors came to me years ago with this idea of this character uh, that he called the house tuner whose practice it was to adjust people's sounds in their homes uh, to adjust their emotions so to speak and you know I think my interest in sound and this character who deals with sound suddenly became a good conduit to tell a story with and uh, there was a lot of uh, opportunities for this kind of unique sound perspective that was really exciting to me. So, I, yeah, I, I suppose sound is a good good place to, to talk about. Could you give us a quick rundown of, of how you would describe it? Not necessarily your logline, but give us the, the, the quick overviews of, of your movie. Yeah, so it's 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 a movie that um, follows a individual who is a, he goes by the job title of a house tuner, but he is an individual who hears uh, things in a unique way. He has a bit of a heightened hearing. Uh, so hears beyond uh, the city din in New York City where his practice is. Uh, but you know, his job is to go into clients' homes uh, who are, you know, would approach him like a therapist and adjust their living spaces sonically, adjusting the sounds appliances make. Interested in this idea, the, the job is completely invented uh, for the movie, but the science behind it is essentially accurate. Um, if you were to hold an instrument tuner up to any sort of appliance or practical object in your home that's creating a buzz or a sound that would register as a as a musical key and it's the idea that we respond to um, music emotionally I think we can respond to sound emotionally too and it can have an effect um, entirely subjective but this character believes that predominant harmonies affect people in a certain way and he's in essence trying to calibrate that for the city as a whole kind of the way I, I like to think of him as a um kind of a conductor of an orchestra, but in this case, the orchestra are all the neighborhoods and boroughs of uh, the city. I first became uh, aware of Eric Lynn when I saw Hearts Beat Loud, yeah. which uh, is, is a fantastic movie, and I, I recommend to people all the time. Uh, I don't know where that uh, falls in the timeline, because it did come out, I think, about a year ago. And how long ago did you start the production of this? I know that timelines on movies can, can vary greatly. And um, uh, I'm wondering how you and Eric Lynn became, uh, became acquainted. 
Yeah, uh, well, Timeline, I've been working on this movie for several years now. We, we had a short at Sundance in 2013 that was um, kind of the inspiration for this feature, followed that same character. And, you know, the ensuing years were turning that into a feature-length script, uh, taking time to do that. I'm certainly very slow and methodical in my work because uh, I like to do things a certain way, and that's just how I've always done it. So during those years, I was certainly... Uh, before anybody else was involved other than Ben and I who we were writing together um, I was certainly thinking about the visuals of the movie and you know knowing that I wanted to make something that I responded to that I like cinematically and one of the first things I did that I think could be interesting just for as a podcast or you know the sort of kind of like radio listeners is I sat down with uh, when Peter Sarsgaard uh, became interested and involved. We sat down, him and I, and just recorded the entire script um, through microphones like this setup. It wasn't, um, it was a cold read essentially. I was reading all the other characters and he was reading his roles. Uh, that turned into this kind of radio play for me that I could listen to. For so many years you're reading a script and then suddenly I could put it, you know, in a premiere timeline and press play and I could listen to it. But then naturally having that, you know, 90 minute asset of sorts, I started putting in music, sound effects, That then that became pulling still references that I'd eventually talk about with a cinematographer. And it almost was this odd animatic in a way that I was just using as kind of a, a blueprint that I could just know that it could, it, at least this works. You know, I, I know if, if, if all else fails, I can fall back on this and I, I can feel the movie in a way and I can see it um, in this, you know, very lo-fi version. An auditory animatic, essentially. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So that that was part of the process, you know, of, I started pulling a lot of images. So uh, for about a year, I was, you know, compiling kind of my, my reference points. And I was really interested in photographing New York in the way that I grew up seeing it in the movies from an outsider or something little, not kind of an alternate New York City, I like to think about it. As uh, Gordon Willis has this great quote uh, when he photographed uh, Manhattan, that he uh, described it as romantic reality. And, uh, I just, I loved that idea. Do you, do you know about I think that happens all the time, especially in Christmas in New York movies and all kinds of stuff like this. There's this romanticized version, particularly of Manhattan, that is just, it's like this magical place and everything kind of like lines up like uh, like kismet. So I think that, and this is just me as an outsider having just, just watched your movie, there, there's an element of that that, com- that comes into your movie, but uh, I won't say it's on, the, it's on the nose. It definitely happens sonically though, because because your movie plays with sounds and all kinds of different sounds in different ways and harmonizing or disharmonizing. And I think it's the soundscape that you created in this uh, meshes so well with, the, with your visuals. I, I kind of want to wonder because usually sound is almost the afterthought. Sound is like, hey, we have this beautiful movie. We made this movie. Now we have to put the sound in to, to match it. Yours felt so intentional. I was wondering if that happened much earlier in the process, if you were figuring out your sounds and trying to match visuals, or if it was the traditional process of, you know, sound almost as the afterthought, or sound, you know, we, we, we created the movie visually, now we're creating it sonically. Or did you um, tell me about that process? Yeah, certainly we were thinking about sound from the beginning. Um, and when uh, Eric Lynn and I were discussing kind of the look of the movie, we were thinking, you know, we wanted to tell the movie from Peter's perspective, from, from the main character's um, not only um, visual point of view, but his sonic uh, perspective as well. So we knew that whenever we showed New York City in these kind of like big sweeping grand shots that you've seen a lot of times, we wanted to, in, this, in the sound mix, kind of isolate some specific or more nuanced noise that's below the cacophony in a, in a way. We felt that that was a unique approach to kind of turning, you know, tur- turning that um, thing that you've seen a thousand times on its head a little bit. 
and you know, and, I, and layered with the score as well, because you've got a score, you've got a, right. like, like a, um, a a room tone mm-hmm. or a cityscape mm-hmm. uh, a tone, for lack of a better term. And then I really appreciated how much um, I think there's a scene where someone is like throwing Chinese food into like a, a styrofoam container, mm-hmm. and you can hear that noise come through the din. Yeah. And uh, I, I know that I know that was completely intentional and, and wonderful. And now all of our listeners get to hear the phone in the background. So for, <laughs> it's <laughs> perfect, you know. It's t- talking about sound while having sound interruptions. Yeah, I, is it's, it's, I, I think that's uh, we couldn't have asked for better. So, <laughs> so uh, anyway, I'm I'm sorry. Well, I, I no, no, no that, that's a, the, like on that certain uh, you know on that specific detail that you talked about. I owe a lot of that my my sound designer. Uh, wanted to go a step further, and they tuned all of those sound effects. This is super, super nerdy, but but uh, like uh, any audio. You're in good company. (laughs) Our podcast is filled with nerds. We 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 wanted to make uh, you know someone with absolute pitch essentially could could understand it. That that sounded like a C in that moment, and you know you can do a lot of things with 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 audio tools to you know record the source material and then tune that to the way you wanted to. Um, so we liked kind of, you know, having that extra layer to these, um, we call them these like little city symphonies. But when Eric and I were talking about the look of the film, we always referred to sound as this kind of the character. And, you know, when you make a movie, you're really not getting to sound until later in the process. So we were always kind of leaving room for that character to appear. And ways we, we did that visually were, you know, um, we talked a lot about negative space and having um, Peter or whoever he was talking to isolated in the frame, not using, you know, over the shoulders or dirty frames to just show also you know he's a character who is fixing other people but is his own way isolated and and lonely so that helps you know isolate him quite you know visually in in the frame um and left room for us to create that you know sonic atmosphere around him there's some really wonderful use of color and i think primarily in peter's home his uh, bomb shelter a home apartment it it seems to be and almost with rare exception anywhere else sort of in the world that you've created like a warm safe place like this is his haven and uh, and forgive me if i'm reading too much into this but it's uh i feel like the rest of the world on the outside his even like his his wardrobe design he seems very like warm and earth tones and sort of uh in in his space but the world outside of him is a little bit harsher a little bit cooler it doesn't have the same sort of saturation a lot of the time can you can you was it is this just me you know mentally masturbating here about your color palette or was there some intention did you guys go down this path uh, what, what am, am i crazy no oh gosh yeah no i'm 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 glad uh that's the that's resonating and coming through. I mean, that was, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm certainly um, someone who, when I when I write a script, I, I write a script that I'm going to direct. And you know, even though you're you're not supposed to write long descriptions, the description of Peter's home, the former Cold War era fallout shelter, uh, was very specific and specifically about being um, cozy uh, and uh, having warm Persian rugs and uh, lamps that you know make the space, yeah, feel like a womb in a way. And it's, you know, he's someone who lives there to be isolated because, you know, the sound haunts him in a way. It's his, his, his biggest um, power is his flaw at, this, at the same time. And we really liked that irony and showing that contrast. And then the other thing, you know, um, beyond New York being cold, I really wanted to photograph this movie. We shot in between March and April in New York. And so you're right kind of on the towing the line between the spring bloom that happens when a lot of movies shoot in New York is lush, kind of beautiful green Central Park. But uh, I really wanted to show uh, Central Park dead, essentially. And it, it, a big reference point was um, the Jonathan Glazer film Birth. Um, everyone loves how Harry Savita shot that, but it was something I was pulling up every day. It's like, how did they do this? And it's like, I, th- I think the biggest kind of presence in that movie in New York is the way um, 
and uh, hopefully we translate it a little bit in our movie is when you see these uh, trees in Central Park without tre- without leaves, they look like these big black veins up against the sky. So it has this kind of ominous present in this, um, you know, the city that you know, but it helped um, kind of disguise and show that kind of that alternate New York that I was talking about earlier, too, in a way. You, you chose, and, and here we're going down into the, the geeky place a little bit here, mm-hmm. uh, we, you chose the uh, Univisium aspect ratio of 2 to 1. So it's a lovely aspect ratio. I've talked about it many times on, on this podcast. Where did the, how did that come to be? Uh, well, it's something I, I gave a lot of thought to. I think, you know, I, I've made a lot of short films in, 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 my, in my small career, and um, it's, uh, I, I think I've become very comfortable shooting, you know, in 16.9, which is essentially 1.85. And I knew when I made my first feature that I, I wanted to go a little, little bit wider, but I think I realized early on that I, I was working so much out of my comfort zone and things I knew. I wanted to work with a lot of collaborators on this movie. I set up a, a few kind of uh, benchmark challenges for myself. And I knew that one of the things that I didn't want to sacrifice was working with such an unknown as much as, you know, 2351 is uh, one of, I think, the aspect ratio for motion pictures. And it, it's something I, I, I wasn't quite comfortable jumping into right away, knowing how much was on the line. But at the same time, I think the, the bigger pull for not going that wide was this kind of that naturalism I was trying to pull off. We looked at um, one film that I like to use at a reference point when we were kind of prepping the film was Being John Malkovich. And they, they shot not not two to one, but it was what, one thing that I think worked about that movie is you have a, you know, a sci-fi movie, essentially, in a naturalistic environment. But I think what helps do that is it almost has like a documentary feel if you don't go into full scope, you know, that suddenly creates such an artifice on the lens and you're really in a movie that way. But what I liked about two to one, it's kind of right right in the middle. And I mean, you know, that's why uh, it was essentially invented uh, for that purpose. And I I think it was striking when we were doing tests and it's just Eric, who I had met, um, you know, while we were getting ready for the movie, had just shot Hearts Beat Loud and as well and had really good experience. And I think that was kind of like what sealed the deal is like, let's go in and, you know, do this. Um, you're very comfortable in that aspect ratio. It's it's so similar to what I've been doing, but it's a little, it's like a baby step to get a little bit wider. But um, it became perfect for us also, you know, to shoot. We had a lot of interiors in the movie and it gives a little bit more width to, you know, you can frame things a little bit more practically um, in small environments when you are that much wider. I, I realize I, I derailed the question earlier, but how did you and Eric get connected? How did that uh, come about? Uh, I actually met him through one of my producers, Mike Prawl, uh, who had worked with him in the past, and I had seen a lot of Eric's work over the year. He's one of these guys uh, in New York who's kind of done everything, and uh, I, I don't think I could, you know, specifically nail down a specific Eric Lynn work, uh, you know, look, but I think that's what's great about him. He's very versatile. You know, I think we first met and he had read the script and uh, I really wanted to meet with him and we were talking about Ozu all of a sudden and I was like okay this th- this guy I think you know kind of gets kind of the, the world that I want to build and I know he's um, he's very serious and very detail oriented and I think we, we just uh, had like a shorthand right away in terms of movie references and what we wanted to do with this movie to make it really look special and he became a great collaborator in the process. Uh, you've got a great cast you've got uh, Peter Sarsgaard and uh, Rashida Jones uh, most notably as the, as the leads in this project how did you or um how did your your cast come to how did it all come together uh well what all started with you know i knew the f- the the key role was finding the house tuner and um it's uh peter is someone i wanted to work with always i mean he's he's kind of a a dream actor to me he's uh i, I describe him as a chameleon of sorts he can disappear into so many different roles 
Um, and I think the, the film that I seriously, as, as we were in the writing process, I saw Michael Amareta's uh, Experimenter, where he plays a scientist of sorts, much different sort of scientist, much different sort of film, but I, it, it was a different sort of role than I had seen him in, in the past. And I, I think it piqued my interest in, okay, well, here's how he looks in a blazer. Here's, uh, you know, uh, here's how he looks kind of like talking about science. And that kind of stuck in my head. And I also think Peter has one of the most unique uh, voices in, 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 in movies right now. Uh, and it's infectious. And I, I just list, love listening to his voice. So like knowing that I was making a movie about sound where there, I'm going to be hearing him a lot, that was a nice kind of leaping off point. I was able to get him the script uh, through, we had mutual uh, connections at Anonymous Content. And I wrote him a long love letter of sorts. And I was amazed. He read the script probably within 48 hours of getting it to him, and we were sitting down for lunch the next week. I was uh, admittedly, uh, you know, kind of intimidated to meet Peter, but I, I think one thing that I likened to right away was within 30 seconds, he is such a warm presence and inviting. It's much different from a lot of the kind of characters he gets cast in, uh, which I think it just speaks to his ability so much. And we talked about music, and uh, he plays a lot of musical instruments and sound, his own interest in sound. And I knew right away that, you know, like this was going to work. And we just hit it off, and um, he was attached to the movie about a year before we physically started making it. So he was a real champion to kind of make all the other pieces uh, fall in line and attract more cast and get more people interested, which is great, you know, and it's how you got to do it. Uh, and Rashida was next. Uh, she was on the top of the list that my casting director, Rory Bergman, got me. And I had never really seen Rashida at that point playing anything but comedy. She's obviously, I know her from her comedic talents, and which I think is her forte. And I did a deep dive into her work and realized that, yeah, there is a lot more uh, to her, which I, I think is incredible. And, you know, she's also a really talented writer and filmmaker in her own right. And uh, when we uh, met and talked, I could just uh, know, I could know right, tell right away she was going to be a great collaborator and uh, really became someone who helped evolve uh, scenes on set in a, in a really natural way and uh, jived really well with Peter. So that was really um, a great kind of pairing. And then uh, my, my, I think my next on my list was Austin Pendleton, who uh, is one of my favorite act character actors, and uh, yeah, he's really great. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that guy. Uh, he had, had coincidentally, you know, worked with Peter in the past. Uh, he's you know in, in theater in New York, and um, it just you know started like building this family very slowly. And um, Tony Revolori came on, uh, who I think everyone fell in love with in the Grand Budapest Hotel, and uh, I just found him to be such a intelligent, thoughtful, young actor who is just very serious. We talked a lot when we first met about um, the relationship between John Gazelle and Gene Hackman in the conversation where they kind of, you know, similarly work in this kind of sound lab, but, you know, have a interesting dynamic. And I, I saw uh, Tony as kind of a kindred spirit to the John Gazelle character in a way, the, the role he plays in our film, uh, you know, and then you just, you build and build. It, it seems like a really wonderful and very cerebral cast that you have. You have like you know, all these really very talented, really fantastic people together, and you have them all, you have them all rowing the boat in the same direction. I have to give you a lot of credit for that as as the director because I spent decades working on sets and uh, worked on a lot of productions, and it's not always the case. Even if you think you've got the perfect the perfect cast, it, sometimes you get people who kind of want to go off in left field and want to do their own thing. But you really had everyone. It felt like very unified going through it together. Everyone really felt to me the same tone. I gotta say that. I want to talk about the score. Uh, the score, which ordinarily I think is more of an underlying note for uh, you know dramas or comedies or anything else, and of course it, it can be so heavy-handed, it can really swell and really draw attention to itself when it's done poorly. 
your score interacts with the rest of your sound design so well. And it, to me, it, it like there's big chunks of the movie which is just there's no dialogue. It's just sound mm-hmm. and score, and it never feels that. It never feels heavy-handed. It always feels like it just blends so smoothly and and. I, I'm sure that it that some of that is coming after the fact after you have the visuals, but it it, it to me it's like it's a it's a marriage. And I'm sorry, this is a giant gushy thing right here. So uh, I did flattery uh, never. But is uh, wrong. but I'll tell you, it's like uh, t- talk about how the, how the score came around and working with your composer and the original music that that goes with all this. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing you know, I, I I was leaving score kind of to I, I wanted that to come organically, and I was very mercurial, admittedly, in the process of kind of what. Um, what direction I wanted to go with it. And I had the opportunity, I met Will Bates, uh, who's our composer, uh, also about a year before we made the movie. And um, we were talking about, I loved, he had done this score for Alex Gibney's doc, Going Clear About Scientology, and uh, had used the theremin as pr- pr- predominantly in, the, in, in, in that score. And, and I, you got some theremin in yours too. We actually have an instrument called the Adnes Martinat, which Whoa. is theremin-like. It's around. It was invented around the same time, and it's inspired by. But this early kind of electronic uh, instrument sound was was interesting. It just felt kind of odd enough to fit our world and to fit Peter as we're kind of looking. You know, as much as the sound design is told from Peter's perspective, we wanted the score to be kind of this um, omnipresent narrator in a way, like the, the Greek choir kind of watching Peter and it's uh, kind of commenting as the audience would kind of on his. Uh, methodology and his, his oddities. But one thing that happened during, um, in the middle of our edit actually, when we, 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 I was kind of pushing score, pushing score off, is I got invited uh, via the Sundance Institute out to this lab that they hold at Skywalker Ranch called the Film Music and Sound Lab, where they paired me with a composer fellow and also a sound designer at Skywalker to really kind of experiment at a, at a place in the middle of our edit, which was such a luxury, um, to where I would be going later. And uh, one thing that I learned from there and was I wanted to emulate in our movie is being able to literally work with a composer in one room and then walk across the hallway and be working with a sound designer is if you can design it that way, if you have that ability, uh, can do so much. And I knew that when we got to that stage on this movie that I really wanted to blend those together as much as possible. And even though uh, Will Bates was working on the West Coast and we were uh, mixing uh, at a place called Harbor in New York City, we uh, were always in dialogue together. And, you know, my sound designers were really interested in, you know, tuning their, you know, uh, all of the things they were doing to Will's music. And we were able to pass things back and forth and to really kind of emulate that process the way I wanted to. Um, and I think speaks to a lot to, um, you know, how that's uh, coming across in, in the movie is the, the, the pairing and the dance between, um, you know, these departments that usually work separately together um, just because of the way that these things have to be made. Um, but we tried to do that as much as possible and um, was a really, um, I think, crucial to, um, to, to have that come across. Speaking of sound, just because, you know, I, I, I like that people are listening to this with headphones. Uh, I, I just dug deep in, you know, not all these things are are in the film, but we, we did a lot of uh, research, Bed Neighbors and I, uh, when we were obviously writing the movie, and we just, you can go down so many rabbit holes of interesting sound phenomena and, and, and that sort of thing, and, you know, I, I like think that you you know in the middle ages the uh, the catholic church banned uh, certain notes from being uh, played uh, something called like the, the devil's tritone um, and I, I liked that you know uh, 500 years ago we were already kind of like thinking about how our emotions essentially are reacting to sound and then you look at um 
NASA uh, successfully measured what a black hole sounds like. I believe it registered as a B flat. Uh, that that was really interesting to me. Also, you know, bringing a practical sound onto this Western music musical scale, and then you know what does make it into the film uh, is the, which which is a really intriguing subject matter for me. Is at the turn of the century, there was this uh, commission that the Department of Health set up, the Noise Abatement Commission, to measure uh, the city din. And uh, they, they didn't have any success uh, in solving that problem. It's only gotten worse. But uh, I, I just, I love that in New York, we've constantly been thinking about how to solve the sound problem, but haven't made any progress. And then lastly, another kind of fun anecdote is the, uh, the composer John Cage has this uh, story that he used to tell where he went into an anechoic chamber and, uh, you know, this room that's supposed to be devoid of sound. And uh, Yeah, I've been in there, and it is uh, truly unsettling because you start to hear, like, the sound of your own heartbeat and, like, the blood rushing through your veins. And exactly. All kinds of, like, yeah. weird sounds when you swallow you never heard before. So, yeah, yes. so and that's what, exactly his experience. He walked out and talked to the sound engineer, and he's like, I still hold her noise, and that's what he heard, you know. So I like this, this theme that even in complete silence you can't escape yourself, and I think that's a running motif, uh, certainly for our character in this movie michael thank you so much for being on the show it, it's it's really been been fantastic oh my pleasure thanks for having me again this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com don't forget to subscribe to our show on itunes and connect with us on facebook and twitter thanks for listening